Okay, let's bow our heads and we'll open with a word of prayer and we'll keep going. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you that we're able to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and study together and uh, see what it is you want us to be and what you want us to do. So we pray for your continued guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're talking at characteristics of a healthy Adventist church and also characteristics that we need as Adventists, as Christians, things that we want to have a clear understanding on. So our first characteristic we spoke about a few moments ago is having a clear identity, right? The second thing we're talking about now is having an urgent message. And we're looking in Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. We're going back and getting a little bit of the context in Revelation chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Revelation chapter 10. We have this description of an angel coming down out of heaven, sets his one foot upon the earth and, the, and his other foot upon the sea. He has a little book that's open in his hand. But then I want to draw your attention to here in verse 3. This is uh, Revelation chapter 10, verse 3. Um, he had a little book open in his hand, verse 3, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. In the book of Revelation, who is the voice of a lion? Who's described as a lion in Revelation? Jesus is. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when a lion roars, and when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. And then verse 4 says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. Now I find this interesting. In vision, John is about to write something that he hears, and then God says, no, no, don't write it down. So it's as if something is revealed, but it's not fully understood, as if something is concealed or something is held back. That's important to note. We'll come back to that a little later on. And then verse um, 5, Then the angel whom I saw stand upon the sea and upon the land raised his hand toward heaven. What does it mean to raise your hand toward heaven? It means to utter an oath. In, in court, when you, you know, promise to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, you raise your hand towards heaven. So this is an oath. Verse 6, And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven, the things that are there in the earth, and the things that are therein, and the sea, and the things that are therein. Where have you found that same wording? The first angel's message, right? Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs that are therein. And verse 7, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished, as he is declared unto his servants the prophets. So there is this mystery connected with this little book, that's opening the hand of the angel, but the mystery will be revealed or it would be understood when the seventh angel begins to sound. Now, what is Revelation chapter 10 describing? It's describing the experience of the early Advent believers, right? They were studying the little book of Daniel, and in particular there was a time prophecy, the 2300 days. After 2300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And there was something about that they couldn't quite understand. What was it that they didn't understand about the verse? Was it the time period? Did they, did they get the time period right? 457 B.C. all the way through till 1844. Did they get that right? Did they get the time right? But what was the part of the verse, Daniel 8:14, that they got wrong? The cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, they thought the sanctuary was the earth, and the cleansing of the sanctuary would be by fire at the second coming of Christ. So there was something about this little prophetic book that was not fully understood like those seven thunders that uttered their voice and he's about to write and then God says, don't write it. In other words, hold something back. And we can see the same experience with the disciples. Did Jesus tell his disciples before his crucifixion that he was going to be crucified 
and was going to be buried, but then that he would rise again. Did Jesus tell the disciples that before the crucifixion at some point in his ministry? Yes, he did. But when Jesus was actually crucified, were the disciples discouraged? Were they bitterly disappointed when Jesus was crucified? Yes, it was as if something was not fully understood. It wasn't until after the fact, after the resurrection, that they really began to understand what it is that Jesus was trying to tell them. So it was with the early Advent believers. They were studying the little book of Daniel, and based upon their study, they came to the conclusion that at the end of the 2300 days in 1844, Jesus would come. But there was something about that they didn't understand, the sanctuary. And so they were bitterly disappointed when Jesus didn't come. But God was still leading them through this. Now, the point that you need to note here, we're going to come back to verse 7 in just a minute. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spake to me again and said, Go take the little book which is opening the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and upon the earth. So I went to the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it. It will be in your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So the little book is sweet in their mouth, but bitter in their stomach. What does it mean to eat the book? What does that mean? What does it mean to eat something? I'll give you a clue. Jeremiah chapter 15, 16 says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. What does it mean to eat something? It means to receive it, to study it. So they were studying the little book of Daniel. They ate it up. It was sweet in their mouth. Why was it sweet in their mouth? They thought Jesus was coming, right? But when Jesus didn't come, what was their experience? Bitter disappointment. So that's why the angel says to John, eat it up. It's sweet in your mouth. This is verse 9, but it will make your stomach bitter. Verse 10, this is Revelation 10, 10. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach was bitter. So here John is playing the part of the early Advent believers. Now coming back over here in verse 7. Verse 7 says, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, then the mystery of God will be finished. Now what do we know about the seventh trumpet, the sounding of the seventh angel or the seventh trumpet? What does that mean? And how did that help those Advent believers understand what the 2,300-year prophecy was all about and the cleansing of the sanctuary. Well, to understand that, go to Revelation chapter 11 and in verse um, 15, you have the sounding of the seventh trumpet. This is very interesting. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So get the picture. When the seventh trumpet begins to sound, there's voices heard in heaven that say the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, to understand what that's about, you have to go to the little book of Daniel. Just to get a quick overview. What's Daniel chapter 2 about? Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember that? And there's the image. What was the head of the image made out of? Gold representing what kingdom? Babylon. Chest and arms of silver representing who? Medo-Persia. Oh, by the way, how many arms? Two arms. The kingdom that conquered Babylon comprised of two parts, the Medes and the Persians. And uh, which power came up first, the Medes or the Persians? 
the Medes. Which power ruled longer and was stronger? The Persians. That's interesting. So the second power ends up being more powerful and ruling longer. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. The belly and the thighs of brass represents what kingdom? Kingdom of Greece. What about the legs of iron? Who does that represent? Rome. How many legs? How many parts to Rome? There's two. What are the two parts? Pagan Rome and Papal Rome. Which one came up first? Pagan Rome. Which one ruled longer and was stronger? Papal Rome. You see the parallel between Medo-Persia and Rome? And then the feet, of course, of iron and clay represents divided Western Europe. And then there's the stone that's cut out without hands that comes and strikes the image upon its feet. Who does that stone represent? Christ. He's coming. That stone represents his kingdom. That's when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord, right? Something else important to note, that stone striking the image also is judgment. Would you say that's judgment when Jesus comes? Will judgment fall upon the wicked when Jesus comes? Yes, they're destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Something else interesting about that stone, Jesus said, whoever falls upon this stone will be broken, but woe unto the one upon whom it falls, for it will grind him to powder. It's interesting, Jesus used that same imagery that you find in Daniel chapter 2. So in Daniel 2, you have this image, head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, and then the stone. Then you have judgment that comes. Then in Daniel chapter 7, you have these beasts representing these same kingdoms. The kingdom of Babylon is represented by a lion with eagle's wings, right? Then next, the kingdom of Medo-Persia is represented by what animal? A bear raised up on the one side. Why is he raised up on the one side? The Persians were stronger than the Medes. There's three ribs in his mouth representing the three principal nations that Medo-Persia conquered on its rise to power. The next beast is what? A leopard with how many heads? Four heads and how many wings? Four wings. What kingdom does that represent? Greece. Now remember when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom's divided up amongst his four generals. Then the next beast is sort of this nondescript dragon-like beast that has ten horns and iron teeth and so on. What kingdom does that represent? Represents the kingdom of Rome. And then in vision, uh, John notices this little horn that comes up on the head and it uproots three of the other horns. What does that little horn represent? Papal power. The ten horns represent the ten divisions of the Roman Empire or Western Europe. What immediately follows the rising up of the little horn and the ruling of this little horn power? Well, the, th the three are uprooted as the little horn comes up, okay? But then the little horn power will rule, and then after, what's the next thing that Revelation, I mean, Daniel 7 talks about? The what? The judgment. Let's go to that real quick. There's something you need to note. We'll come back here to Revelation chapter 10. But look at Daniel chapter 7 now. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, so we have the little horn power discussed, and then, well, let's just look at verse 8, Daniel 7 verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up amongst them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there was in this horn eyes as the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So right after the papal power rules, verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father. His garment was as white as snow, and his hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne a fiery flame, its wheels burning fire. 
A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Notice the next part. The court was seated and the books were opened. Now you can pause right there. Daniel 2, you've got Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Western Europe, judgment, second coming of Christ. Daniel 7, you've got Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome, the papacy, divided Western Europe, and judgment. Now it's talking about judgment in heaven. The court is set, the Ancient of Days is seated. And then Daniel chapter 7, if you look at verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like unto the Son of Man. Who's that? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. Notice he's not coming to the earth. It's not the second coming. But coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So, what we see in Daniel chapter 7 is, first of all, God the Father, he gets up and he moves into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, and he takes his seat. The judgment's about to begin. Then Jesus, with the angels, enter into the most holy place to be with God the Father. So now you have the judgment taking place in heaven. And then notice what happens at the end of that judgment. This is Daniel chapter 7 now and verse 14. Then to him, that is Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, if you put all of that together, Revelation chapter 10 says that at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, when it begins to sound, the mystery of God will be revealed as declared unto the prophets. Well, what happens in Revelation 11 when the seventh trumpet begins to sound? The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord. When does that happen? When does that begin? That takes place at the end of this judgment that's described in Daniel chapter 7, at the second coming of Christ, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord. Yes. Why the little book? Well, there's a couple of clues. Number one, it's a little book. The book of Daniel is a little. Number two, it's got a mysterious time prophecy to it. And number three, it's a prophetic book. It's got a mystery and it's a prophetic book. So if you put those three together, what book in the Old Testament is a prophetic book that has a time prophecy that is sealed and eventually is unsealed? It's only the book of Daniel. And then, so from the context is where we get that from, from Revelation chapter 10, as to the little book. Yes. That's good. Stop me anytime and ask. Yeah, yeah. Those are the three main reasons why the little book of Daniel is connected with, with what we read about in Revelation 10. So, Daniel 2, you've got these kingdoms, you've got judgment. Daniel 7 tells the same thing. Kingdoms, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome, and judgment. But it doesn't tell us the time of the judgment. Daniel 8. What do you find in Daniel chapter 8? There is a ram and there is a goat. Now here's something else interesting. What does a ram and a goat have in common and a lion and a bear and a leopard and uh, you know, a dragon have in common? What does a goat and a ram have in common and what does a lion and a bear and a leopard have in common? Sorry? 
Okay, domesticated and wild, that's a good point. Yes, the ones in Daniel 7 are not sacrificial animals. You can't sacrifice a lamb, a bear, or a leopard, or a dragon, but you can sacrifice a ram and a goat. Now, where would you sacrifice a ram and a goat in Old Testament times? The sanctuary. So the theme of Daniel chapter 8 is centered in the sanctuary. It's sanctuary image, imagery. That's important to note. Now, of course, you have Daniel 7, you have these kingdoms. You have these kingdoms repeated in Daniel 8. Babylon is not mentioned, but you do have the ram, the one horn larger than the other, representing Medo-Persia, and you have the he-goat with the one notable horn between his eyes. That's the kingdom of Greece, and the one horn is Alexander the Great. And then it says the one horn was broken, and in its place four others grew. When Alexander the Great died, his kingdoms divided up amongst his four generals. We already studied that in Daniel 7. And then it says from one of them, that's one of the four points of the compass, another horn comes that grows big and persecutes the people of God and even goes up against Christ, even goes up against the prince, speaking of Jesus. That's pagan Rome, but then also papal Rome. So we're covering the same time period, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, papal Rome. And what's the next thing that's supposed to follow after papal Rome? in Daniel 7 and Daniel 2. What's that? Remember the sequence? You got Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, papal Rome, and then what's the next thing that follows? Judgment, right? Daniel 2, it's the stone. In Daniel 7, the court is set in heaven. The Ancient of Days goes in. So in Daniel 8, you got the same sequence, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, papal Rome, and then what should be the next obvious thing that comes into focus? Judgment. Judgment. Now, the interesting thing about Daniel 8, it tells us the time of the judgment. Daniel 7 describes the judgment, but Daniel 8 actually tells you when the judgment's going to take place. And what time period do we have in Daniel chapter 8? Daniel 8, 14. Let's take a look at that. Unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So that's the time of the judgment. That's explaining when the judgment's going to begin. That's been given in Daniel chapter 7. Do you see the pattern? The pattern's important. You've got Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome, the papacy, and then judgment. And then you've got those same kingdoms, and now instead of describing judgment in chapter 8, it actually tells you when judgment begins. That's the point. So Daniel 8, 14, unto 2,300 days. Now, of course, when do you, where do you find the beginning for that 2,300-day time period? Where do you find the beginning? Daniel chapter 9, right? The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 457 B.C. You go forward in time, and of course the first 70 weeks or 490 years is given for the Jews and so on. But that time period eventually ends in 1844. So the time period for the judgment starts in 1844. And according to Revelation chapter 10, it says, when the trumpet begins to sound and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord, then the mystery will be revealed about the little book. Well, when does the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord? In the judgment. When does the judgment begin? 1844. So the mystery of the book of Daniel would be understood after 1844. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Now go back to Revelation chapter 11 real quick. The sounding of the seventh trumpet. It's over here in verse 15. Daniel, uh, sorry, Revelation. Revelation 11:15. 15. Revelation 11:15. 15. 
It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And then if you look down in verse 19, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple, and there were lightnings and noises and thunderings, earthquake and great hail. So notice, now the picture is drawn, the Ark of the Covenant is seen in His temple. Where was the Ark of the Covenant? In the earthly sanctuary. What compartment? Most holy place. And we know the earthly is a shadow of the heavenly. Daniel chapter 7 says the Ancient of Days goes in and He is seated and then the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus. So that's describing what's happening in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. So when the seventh trumpet begins to sound, that's where Jesus goes into the most holy place and the pre-advent judgment or the investigative judgment begins in heaven. Then the mystery will be understood with reference to the little book of Daniel. That's exactly what happened. Prior to 1844, people didn't understand the mystery of Daniel. It was a sealed book. But once they went through that experience, that bitter disappointment, and the seventh trumpet began to sound, Jesus began His pre-advent judgment. Then suddenly they began to understand it. Then it made sense to them. Okay? Now with that as a background, we go to Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. Revelation 10, 11. This is after John eats the book. It's sweet in his mouth, bitter in his stomach. Verse 11. And he said unto me, You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. In other words, your work's not over. It's scarcely begun. Now, can you just imagine the early Advent believers as, you know, they thought Jesus was coming. They didn't harvest their fields. They didn't need to. Jesus was coming. They invested everything they have in telling the world that Jesus is coming, and then Jesus doesn't come. And they're bitterly disappointed, so discouraged. But then somebody is reading in the book of Revelation, and they read in chapter 10 about this little book opening the hand of the angel, and John eats it up, and it's sweet in his mouth, but bitter in their stomach. And then suddenly they understand what happened in 1844 and the pre-advent judgment and so on, and suddenly they go, oh, that's us. That's a description of us. That's our experience. And then as they read on, they looked at verse 11, and he said, you must prophesy again. And they began to realize that their work wasn't over. It had scarcely begun. God was calling them to preach a message again that has to go to all the world. Now, the Bible divisions between chapters that we have now are not in the original. The original Greek doesn't have any chapter divisions. And in this case, Revelation 11, 1 and 2 really belong in Revelation chapter 10. Look at Revelation 11, verse 1. He says, And I was given a reed likened to a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship therein. So now John is given this reed. Another word for a reed is a ruler. And he says, Measure the temple. Now, if I'm measuring something, let's say I'm measuring the length of these chairs, I'll take my tape measure and I'll hook it on here and I'll walk along here. And then I'm looking at the chairs and comparing their length with an absolute standard. Another word for measuring is judging. I'm comparing something to the absolute standing. Does that make sense? And so here John is given a reed, and they say, measure the temple and measure those who are worshiping therein. What do you think that reed symbolizes? What are we measured by? What's the absolute standard? The law of God. So there's this measuring taking place. 
this judging taking place. Where does that happen? In heaven, in the pre-heaven judgment, right? This pre-heaven judgment. Now look at verse 2. It says, But leave out the court which is in the outside of the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So the angel says, measure the temple and those who are worshiping in, but don't measure the courtyard. Why do you think that is? What does the courtyard represent? What articles of furniture in the courtyard? The label, the water, what else? Altar of burnt sacrifice. Okay, those are the two main things. What's inside the first compartment of the sanctuary? Three articles. Candlesticks, table of showbread, altar of incense, the veil, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, everything that took place in the courtyard represents the ministry that Christ had on earth. Where did Jesus die for essence? On earth. Everything that happened in the first compartment and the second compartment represents Christ's ministry for us in heaven. That's why it says, leave out the courtyard and don't measure it. In other words, this judgment does not involve those who are in the world. This judgment only involves those who are in the church, those who have responded to God, those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The judgment of the world or the wicked, that comes later on. This pre-advent judgment is just for the righteous before Jesus comes. Why is there a need for a pre-advent judgment before Jesus comes? We've got to know who's going. Is that what you were going to say? We've got to know who's going. In Matthew 22, Jesus told a parable. Just real quick, just give you the, the quick overview. In, the, in Matthew 22, Jesus said there was a certain king that arranged a marriage for his son. Now, whenever Jesus begins a parable by talking about a certain king that has a son who's getting married, who's the king? God the Father. Who's the son? Jesus. What's the marriage? Christ's reception of his bride, the church, and his kingdom. So there's this wedding. And it says those who were first invited, they didn't want to come. Who were the ones who were first invited to the wedding? The Jews. They didn't want to come. And then, of course, the king says, well, then go out to the highways and byways, and whoever you get, bring them to come in. So finally, uh, the wedding hall is furnished with guests. Everybody's in there. Then the king comes in to look at the guests, and he sees there a man that doesn't have on the wedding garment. Do you remember that story? And the king says to the man, how is it that you came hither not wearing the wed wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Couldn't say anything. Why is it that the man couldn't say anything to the king? Why couldn't he answer the king? Because he was given a robe at the door but he refused to put it on. That's why he's speechless. He felt as though his own clothes was good enough. And it wasn't. And so the king said, bind him hand and foot and throw him out. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, does this parable that Jesus is talking about, does this event take place before Jesus comes or after Jesus comes? Does it take place before Jesus comes or after Jesus comes? Is anybody going to be thrown out of heaven who gets into heaven? What happened to the man without the wedding garment? He was thrown out, right? 
So this examining of the guests, where the king comes in and he looks at the guests, this must take place before Jesus comes. Does that make sense? This is the pre-advent judgment. And what is the king looking for when he examines the guests? Is he trying to see how neat the guests' clothes are? Is that what he's looking for? What is he looking for? Who has on the wedding garment? So in this judgment, this pre-heaven judgment, is God looking to see how good our righteousness is? Or is he looking to see whether or not we have on Christ's righteousness? What kind of righteousness will save us? Christ's righteousness. So he's looking to see, are we trusting in Jesus? Are we surrendered to Jesus? Have we by faith received the righteousness of Christ? Are we allowing Christ to live within us? He's not looking to see how good we are because our righteousness will never get us into the kingdom. He's looking to see how righteous or whether or not we've received the righteousness of Jesus, right? Those who have received Christ's righteousness and made it their own, they stay in the kingdom. Those who have just professed faith in Jesus, but they haven't received him as their personal savior, they haven't put on his robe of righteousness in this pre-heaven judgment, they get thrown out, so to speak. When this judgment is over, then probation closes, then Jesus comes the second time to gather those that are his. Then he comes with his rewards to give every man according to their works. So what's being described here in Revelation chapter 11 is this pre-heaven judgment. So there is an urgency in the message. You must prophesy again. Why? Because the judgment is taking place and Jesus is soon to come. That's the context of why they have to prophesy. Yes. Yes. Okay. The ones who get judged now is anyone who, anyone whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. How do you get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Do you have to become an Adventist? No, you receive Jesus as your personal Savior, sincerely, and you confess your sins. You're in the Lamb's Book of Life. The judgment looks at those who at some point in their life have professed faith in Christ, who have received Jesus as their personal Savior. God is looking to see if they still hear are they still faithful? Are they still clothed in the righteousness of Christ? So, no, it's not just Adventists. It's anybody who's received Jesus as their personal Savior. Now, what about the Baptist who's received Jesus as his Savior and this judgment is taking place? Is God going to leave him a Baptist or is God going to bring him into a fuller understanding of his will? He's going to bring him into a fuller understanding of his will. He's going to make up his church at the end from all different groups. So there will be those who are thrown out they are those who come in. At the end of time, they're going to be Adventists who don't have on the wedding garment. And what happens? They're going to leave. And those who are non-Adventists that rarely have on the wedding garment, what's going to happen? They're going to come in. So before Jesus comes, the banquet hall is fully furnished. It's complete. That's the purpose of this judgment, to get the bride complete and together before Jesus comes. Then Jesus comes to receive her as his own. Does that make sense? Yeah. For the pre-heaven judgment. Okay. So in the context of the message that we have to go to all the world, it's in the context of judgment. There is an urgency. The judgment is going on. Jesus is coming. That's the context of the message that needs to go to all the world. What's the message? It's the three angels' messages of Revelation. Testimonies, volume 9. This is an interesting uh, quote. 
In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import. The proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' messages. There is no other work of so great an importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Wow! So what is our mission? What is the message that God has called us to preach to the world? It's a present truth message, and it's the three angels' messages. We don't have to make it up. It's right there. That's God's last warning message. That message will prepare people for the coming of Christ. And so now we take a closer look at the three angels' messages. And for this, all you need is your Bible. You might even know these verses by heart. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in this, but I want to point something out. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that dwell upon the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Verse 7 says, saying with what kind of a voice? Loud voice, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, of course, we just spoke about it in Revelation chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11. There's this judgment time, so there's this urgency, all right? Jesus is coming. Get ready. Jesus is coming. The first angel speaks with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, and worship him that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, you can pause right there. Jesus needs to be worshipped as the creator, and that's part of the first angel's message. But it also says, don't just worship the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea, but also him who made the springs of water. Where in the Bible, the Old Testament, do we read about springs of water or the waters from the deep? By the way, what is a spring? A spring is water that comes up from the earth. Where do we read in the Bible about springs of water or water bursting out from the earth? When's the first mention of that? What was that? Oh, sorry, I missed it. The flood. Remember in the, in the description of the flood, it says the fountains of the deep broke open and the springs of water gushed out, okay? Springs of water came up. So here our attention is being drawn to the flood. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth to see the springs of water, the one who brought the flood. Now, why do you think it's so important that the flood be brought to view in the first angel's message? as part of calling to worship God. When was the first angel's message first proclaimed? What was the date? 1844, right around in that time period. Just a little before that, 1844. What else was happening in the world around 1844? A guy over in England, what was his name? Charles Darwin. And what was Charles Darwin saying? saying we evolved from monkeys, right? From single-celled organisms. And what was God's response? What is God's response to Charles Darwin? Now, where did Darwin get his ideas from about evolution? Did he just pull that out of the air? What was it that he looked at that led to that conclusion in his thinking? He was looking at some islands and so on. But he was also looking at different layers, strata, okay? He's looking at the different layers of earth, the different layers of rock. 
And based upon the current rate of erosion and the current building up of the strata, he extrapolated that look at all these layers of dirt, and if dirt is only piling up this much every 500 years, and you look at all the dirt that's piled up with these layers, that would then mean that the Earth is very, very old. So based upon the different strata, Darwin, along with the other ones, came to the idea of a long age of the Earth. And that, be, that, be, that was the foundation of evolution, long ages. It's interesting to note that in 1844, Charles Darwin began writing his book, Origin of the Species. He started laying out his ideas. The, very, the, the whole theory of evolution is based upon long ages. At that very point in time, when God knew this theory was going to come along, he gave a reason for all of the layers that we see in the earth, the flood. The flood explains where all these layers came from. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my family was down at the Grand Canyon. Oh, I tell you, it's incredible down there where you can see all the layers of dirt. And um, when you have the understanding of the flood, you can just see how the water just washed through this and created these layers, layer after layer of mud, and just buried everything in the path. So the very idea that was being promoted, evolution, the response comes in the first angel's message. God is the one who is the creator. He's worthy of worship. That's why you see the layers. It's because of the flood. He brought the flood upon the earth. So a response to evolution is found in the very first angel's message. Yes? The, f the flood is a much better explanation <laughs> of, the, of the earth the way we see it. And what's amazing to me is God knew the theory of evolution would come along. And in the very first angel's message, he gives an answer to evolutionary thought. That's why specifically it mentions the springs of water. It's directing us back to the flood. So we need not be confused about this theory that's coming along. So when was that first message pre preached? First, 1844. Now, what kind of a voice does the first angel have? A loud voice. Now, if you skip over the second angel and you go to the third angel, what does the third angel say? And the third angel followed them, saying with what kind of a voice? Loud voice. If any man worships the beast or its image or receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb and the presence of God. The most fearful warning that you can find anywhere in Scripture is warning people, don't worship the beast, don't receive his mark or his image. So the first angel is seen proclaiming with what kind of a voice? Loud voice. The third angel has what kind of a voice? Have you ever noticed the voice of the second angel? What kind of a voice does the second angel have? <laughs> the first angel speaks with a loud voice. The third angel speaks with a loud voice. But the second angel goes, <clears throat> Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Where's the loud voice? Why is the first angel speaking with a loud voice and the third angel with a loud voice, but the second angel just says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Here's a clue. There is a fourth angel that you find in Revelation chapter 18. And it describes this mighty angel coming down from heaven. And the earth is illuminated with his glory. And he cries mightily with a strong voice or a loud voice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. In essence, the fourth angel has the same message as the second angel. The difference is the fourth angel has a loud voice. 
why doesn't the second angel have a loud voice? Well, if you look at the three angels' messages, not only do they represent our message as a whole, but they also represent three phases of the Advent movement. For example, when was the message first proclaimed? Fear God, give glory to Him, the hour of His judgment has come. When was the message first proclaimed? 1844 and just after that. And the message was proclaimed the very year, 1844, the Sabbath truth. Worship Him that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Was that message proclaimed with a loud voice in the early days of the Advent movement? Yes, it was. Matter of fact, the Seventh Avenue Church was growing so rapidly that these other denominations were trying to figure out what the secret was to grow. We studied that a little earlier. So the message was proclaimed with a loud voice. Now, the third angel's message says, if any man worships the beast or his image or receives his mark, does anybody have the mark of the beast today? Nobody has the mark of the beast today. They're making up their mind, but nobody has the mark of the beast today. When do people actually receive the mark of the beast? When there are laws passed, the passing of the Sunday law, right? So according to Revelation, the third angel's message, even though we preach that message, that message has a special future application. Does that make sense? Because the third angel says, if any man worships the beast or his image or receives his mark, that's present tense. So the third angel has a special future application from where we are today. So if the first angel represents the early Advent movement and the third angel has a special application for something yet in the future, where would that put us today? Second angel. Now do you understand why the second angel does not have a loud voice? Because according to Revelation chapter 3, what is the condition of the seventh church? Revelation chapter 3, the seven churches, what's the last church? Laodicea. And what's the condition of Laodicea? She is lukewarm. Do you think a lukewarm church is going to proclaim a message with a loud voice? <laughs> Not likely. Not likely. Do you understand why the second angel doesn't have a loud voice? I mean, the message is going out, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But it's not being proclaimed with a loud voice. Why? Because we spiritually lukewarm. We content. The church is content. It's lukewarm. It's Laodicean. Now, the church won't always stay in that condition because you have the third angel. But you have the fourth angel, which is the same message as the second. The difference is that the fourth angel proclaims with a loud voice. Why is it so important that the message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Why is it so important that that message be given? Why is that such an important message? Well, if you look in Revelation chapter 18, you'll find that after the message is given, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, become the habitation of devils, the whole of every foul spirit, and cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Then it says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, What does that other voice from heaven say? Come out of her, my people. Who's speaking there? come out of her, my people. Who says that? Jesus does. You see, in order for Jesus to call his people to come out of Babylon, to come out of religious apostasy, God wants us to first proclaim the message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. You see, that message must be given, and then Jesus can call his people to come out of religious apostasy, make their stand upon the word of God. So when you look at our message we have an urgent message that has to go to all the world. It's a message that has to be proclaimed in a time of judgment. 
a pre-advent judgment. It's a message that calls people to worship the Creator, talks about the judgment, talks about the Sabbath, talks about obedience, the commandments, talks about righteousness by faith, but it's also a message that calls people to come out of religious apostasy, to come out of Babylon. Now, in order for that second angel's message to be proclaimed with a loud voice, the latter rain comes, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes, and the church is empowered to do the work that God has called us to do. So as a people, we need to know who we are and what it is that God has asked us to proclaim. It's the three angels' messages, a message that will prepare people for the coming of Jesus. Let me pause right there. I've given you a lot of information, and we've gone very quick. Uh, let me just stop and ask, just for clarification, any questions at this point? Does that make sense? Are you, are you tracking with me so far? All right, you understand why the second angel doesn't have a loud voice? All right, okay, good. Is everyone okay? We all good? Yes. That's right. It describes the church today. It's kind of the final one. Yeah. Well, he's not very effective in what he does, right? Uh, really, the fourth angel parallels the third angel. Uh, it's, well, no, the, you know, you've got the third angel, if any man worships the beast or his image or receives his mark, and you've got the fourth angel that says Babylon is fallen, is fallen, become the habitation of devils and everything. The fourth angel is the same message as the second as the second. But when things begin to take place, when we have certain legislation being passed, that's going to awaken the church from its Laodiceanism. Not only is the church going to proclaim the message, if any man worships the beast or his image, but the church will also proclaim with a loud voice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So that fourth angel and the third angel sort of are parallel at the time. But right now we find ourselves in the second angel. That's why it doesn't have a loud voice. Spiritual Laodiceanism. Yes. Um, they all three were being. Now, the three angels' message has a very localized application just up to 1844. They were preaching the first, second, and third angels' message. But on a historical scale, no. I mean, when the first angels' message, the Sabbath and the judgment and so on, that was preached. And when the church kind of slipped into a Laodicean attitude, we've still been telling people Babylon's fallen, you know, you need to come out. But it's not been done with a loud voice. Uh, when we see Sunday legislation, that's going to wake people up. And now, oh, don't worship the beast or his image. You see, that'll be of a loud voice. But then also people will be empowered to proclaim Babylon is fallen, he's fallen. Why is Babylon not being proclaimed now? Because it's not a popular message. When you have the ecumenical movement and churches are coming together, to have a group of people say Babylon's fallen, is fallen, that's not a popular message. That's why, you, that's why it's not being preached today. But it has to be preached. And it's scary even in Adventism when there are people that, no, we don't want to preach that stuff, you know, because it's not popular. The very message God is asking us to preach to the world, we don't want to preach. That's what happens in Laodicea. Any other questions on that before we move on here? I want to make sure that's clear. Okay, so we looked at having a clear identity and having an urgent message. The church is God's agency for the proclamation of truth, empowered by Him to do a special work. If she will be true to her allegiance, if she'll honor the God of Israel, there is no power that can stand against her. That's just a wonderful promise. 
when we are committed to doing the work God has called us to do. Okay, so in addition to be having a clear identity and having an effective message or an urgent message, we also need to have effective training. Acts 22.15 says, For you will be his witnesses to all men of what you have seen and what you have heard. So God calls us to be trained. There should be no delay in well-planned effort to educate the church members. So training is needed as God's remnant people. We want to be equipped, we want to be trained. The greatest help that can be given to our people is to teach them to work for God and depend upon Him and not on the ministers. Is that important today in our churches? The lay people? Absolutely. I think my clicker's dying here. Uh, these things Jesus said, command and teach. So in addition to having a clear identity and having an urgent message, we need to be effectively trained. That brings us to our well, one more here. It says, the people have had too much sermonizing, but have they been taught how to labor for those for whom Christ has died? Has a line of labor been devised and placed before them in such a way that each has seen the necessity of taking part in the work? So the question is, we've had too many sermons, but have we been trained? Do we see what we can do to help in God's cause? Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. Its members should be taught how to give Bible studies, that's Bible readings, how to conduct and teach Sabbath school classes, how best to help the poor and care for the sick, how to work for the unconverted. So in addition to all of this theory, we need to be trained and actually put it into practice. Get out there and do the work. Okay, another important characteristic of the remnant church is to have soul-winning ministries. The emphasis here is on the soul-winning part, not just ministries. Now, can you think of some of the ministries that your churches have back home? Give me some, some of the ministries that your church has. You've got a prayer ministry. What else do you have? Youth ministry. What else do you have? Children's ministry. Community ministry. Now, out of these ministries, how many are directly designed for non-Adventists? Personal ministries. Do you guys have any community outreach programs? in your community, kind of health-related. The church that I was pastoring, we had, even before I got to the church, they were really into these, um, these thrift stores, kind of like they call them Dorcas stores, where people would donate clothes, they'd sell the clothes, and they'd come up with money, and then they'd use the money to help people in the community. That's the idea. But the church had to subsidize these stores, and it cost quite a bit of money. And we had two of them going in the town, in the community. People would come, you know, buy clothes, and then we'd help them with their needs and so on. And one day we were in a church board meeting, and one of the board members asked the question. She said, you know, we're spending all of this money on these Dorcas centers, on these stores. How many people have actually been introduced to the Advent message because of our community outreach? And uh, the board members began to look at each other and, and uh, they scratched their head and <laughs> been going for all these years and they, they couldn't think of anyone, anyone that actually joined the church as a result of our ministries. Well, with that, the board started thinking and they said, you know what, we need to change the way we do things. And so instead of just when somebody would come and they would need clothes or money, instead of just giving them money and saying, you know, God bless you and off they go, uh, the people at the, at the store would take down the person's address and then a week would go by and somebody from the church would actually go and knock on that person's door and visit with them and say, you know what, we just wanted to stop by to see how things were going. Is there any way we could help? And the church member would go by and they'd see the children in this person's home. They'd say, you know what, 
we have this wonderful program for kids every Saturday morning from about 9.30 till about 11. We have this great program for kids. And if you want a break on a Saturday morning, we'll come by and we'll pick up your kids and we'll tell them Bible stories. And man, we had people from the community saying, yeah, yeah, I'll have some couple hours of, you know, <laughs> babysitting for free. And so we began to go to all of these people and pick up their kids and bring them to Sabbath school at church. And the kids loved it. They would go back home and they'd tell their parents, oh, we did this and we did that and it was so fun. And then what we did is we began to organize programs with the kids and we'd invite the parents to come see their kids sing at church. And then when the parents would come to the church to see their kids sing, that would be special music for opening night of our evangelistic series. <laughs> so we began to get people coming from the community to the evangelistic meetings, and they began to hear the three angels' messages, you see. So now we were being a little more proactive in our ministries. We were soul winning in our ministries, not just spending all this money to help people to take care of their physical needs, but we are taking care of their physical needs for a purpose very directed in what we do. And I want you to think about the ministries that you guys are involved in in your church. Ask the question, are they soul winning in nature? Are they focused on bringing people to an understanding of the three angels' messages? All right? That's something you want to think about. Okay, soul winning ministries. He who becomes a child of God should henceforth look upon himself as a link in the chain let down to save the world, one with Christ in his plan of mercy going forth with him to seek and save the lost. That was Christ's mission. That needs to be our mission. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So we want to, be, we want to have ministries that are soul winning, focused on people. And of course, this is the Quote we read a little earlier, ministry of healing, Christ's method alone will give true success. He mingled with the people. He showed his sympathy. He ministered to their needs. He won their confidence. Then he said, follow me. Okay, another important characteristic that we need as a church is Christ-centered evangelism. Not just evangelism, but Christ-centered evangelism. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. There is power in the preaching of the word. There may be conversions, this is a very interesting quote, there may be conversions without the instrumentality of a sermon where persons are so situated that they are deprived of every means of grace. They are wrought upon by the spirit of God and convinced of the truth through the reading of the word. People are just reading the Bible. But God's appointed means of saving souls is through the foolishness of preaching. So what is God's appointed or chosen means of saving souls? It's through preaching. The power of preaching. There is power in the preaching of God's Word. We had a guy coming to my church. Uh, he was a member of the church. His name was Rob. And he had a brother, and his brother's name was Pat. And uh, Pat was an interesting fellow. He wasn't interested in religion. Um, he actually was a drug dealer. And everybody in, in town knew about him. He had a tattoo shop. And that's kind of where he'd deal his drugs. And the cops were always trying to catch him, but he always seemed one step ahead of them. Anyway, Rob really had a burden for his brother. And so he'd go by his brother's house and would try and witness to him. But every time he tried to witness, Pat would say, I don't want to hear anything about God. I'm not interested in hearing about that stuff. He'd say, you can't even, don't come to my house if you're going to talk to me about God. And Rob just really had a burden for his brother. And then we were going to start some evangelistic meetings at the church. 
and Rob got an idea. So he went to his brother and he said, you know what? There are these meetings starting at our church. And you know you say you don't want to hear about God? But if you would come to just three of these meetings, just come to the first three meetings with me, then I won't bring up God anymore. Just come to these first three meetings. I won't, I won't try and witness to you anymore. And at first, Pat said, no, 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 I'm never going. And Rob said, come on, just, just do this for me. Just come to the first three meetings. Oh, okay, finally, he said, all right, I'll come. Well, the day came for the evangelistic meetings to begin, and so Rob went by to pick up his brother. And, of course, Pat had forgotten that he had said he would come. So Rob said, come on, you promised you're going to come. Pat said, oh, okay. Now, um, Pat was a big guy, really big guy. He was a tattoo guy, and he was a skinhead. He had his head shaved. He had tattoos all over the place. He was quite the sight. And so when Rob came by and said, come on, we've got to go to church now. Remember you promised, Pat thought about it, said, okay, I'll come, but I'm going to make a statement. So he went in, uh, he, was, he, he was body piercing, so all metal, all over his face, eyebrows, cheek, I mean, it was just quite the, all, you know, tattoos, and he marches up here in church. And um, boy, I tell you, he walks in, and he comes, and he sits right down in the front of the church, and everybody's kind of watching him. And throughout that whole meeting, it was one of these satellite evangelistic meetings, put on the big screen. Mark Finley was preaching. And throughout this whole series, Pat's sitting there, and he's, he's making a noise, and he's looking at his watch, and he's huffing and puffing, you know, and just big distraction. Finally, at the end of the meeting, he gets up, and he marches out, and you can hear him saying, oh, I'm never coming back here again, and he marches out of the church. And it's as if you can hear all the people in the church go, we're glad he's gone. So that's it. We're never going to see him again. But the next day, Rob goes back and he says, come on, you've only come to one. There's still two to go. And Pat, I'm never going. Come on, come on, you promise. Just, oh, okay, okay, finally. So Pat comes back night number two, sits in the front, kind of does the same thing, gets up, marches out at the end. The third time he comes, the third time Mark Finley is preaching on salvation, talking about the cross. And at first, Rob's sitting there and he's fussing and so on. But every now and again, he'll look up and he'll watch. He's listening. He'll watch. Finally, at the end of that presentation, Pastor Mark Finley makes this appeal. He says, you know, if, you, if you're looking for purpose in your life, if you want meaning, if you're looking for peace, Jesus can give that to you. You need to come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus the way you are. And Rob is sitting next to his brother, and suddenly he feels the whole pew begin to shake. And he looks over and pat has his face in his hands, and he's just sobbing. Finally, the call is made. Mark Finley says, if you want to give your life to Jesus, I invite you to come forward, wherever you are. He says, if you're watching this in a church, you just come forward. Suddenly, Pat stands up, and he comes walking to the front, and there he is staring up at the screen, tears just running down his cheeks. And the church is amazed. <laughs> just, <gasps> what do we do now? At the end of that evangelistic series, Pat and his girlfriend got married and baptized all the same day. Incredible story. The Lord just changed his life. The power of preaching. Several years after that, I was going over to India to do an evangelistic series, and I asked Pat to come along with me. He was supposed to look after the equipment and take care of that. And so, you know, he was there with us. And I'd finished preaching my series, and I looked over to see the equipment, and, you know, Pat takes care of it, and he wasn't there. Now, something about India. Have any of you gone over to India and preached an evangelistic series there? When you're over in India, what happens is the woman will surround you, and you can't understand what they say, but then you know what they want. They'll take your hand, and they'll put it on their head. They want you to pray for them, right? That's what they want. 
And so I was finishing up, and I was just talking to my translator, and Pat had gone back to the car. He was in charge of the equipment. He was supposed to take care of the computer and lap, you know, the project and stuff. So he went to the car to get the bag. But on his way back, he had been surrounded by this, by this group of women, and they wanted him to pray for them. And I remember standing on stage looking out, and there was Pat with all of his tattoos, and he had his hands on the heads of these women, and his face was turned up towards heaven, and he was earnestly interceding God on their behalf. And knowing where Pat came from, I said to myself, there is a God in heaven that changes people's lives. That mission trip had such an impact upon Pat that when he came back home, he spoke to his family, and they decided to go back to India as long-term missionaries to help build churches. Everybody had given up on Pat, but that's the power of the preaching of the Word. It changes people's lives. I've seen that over and over and over again. Don't underestimate the power of Christ-centered evangelism. So I want to just encourage you guys, do evangelism. Do evangelism. Just do it and see what God will do. If there's one person, preach to them as though there's a hundred people, a thousand people. Do evangelism and you'll be amazed at what God will do. All right, Christ-centered evangelism. The preaching of the word is the means by which the Lord has ordained that the warning message should be given to the world. And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellency of speech or wisdom declare to you the testimony of God for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and then the fa final quote on this it says of all professing Christians Seventh-day Adventists should be foremost in lifting up Christ before the world the proclamation of the third angel's message calls for the presentation of the Sabbath truth this truth with others included in the message is to be proclaimed but the great center of attraction, Christ Jesus, must not be left out. It is at the cross of Christ that mercy and truth meet together and righteousness and peace kiss each other. So central to our evangelism, central to our preaching is Jesus, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The sinner must be led to look at Calvary with simple faith of a little child. He must trust in the merits of the Savior, accepting His righteousness and believing in His mercy. Another important characteristic that we need in the church is meaningful relationships. Acts chapter 4, 32, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Uh, we are told, We're exhorted to love as brethren, to be kind, courteous, forbearing, in honor, preferring one another. Love for God and for one another constitutes the divine credentials which the children of God bear to the world, meaningful relationships within the church. By this, said Jesus, shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the final quote here, Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all might be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also might be one in us, that the world might believe that you sent me. Jesus says, the world will believe that you sent me when my people are united, when they are one, when they love one another. See, it's a powerful testimony before the world when you have a group of people coming together from different backgrounds, different languages, different cultures, and yet they truly care about one another. The love of Jesus is seen amongst these people. That's a powerful testimony that there's a God in heaven that changes people's lives. 
Powerful testimony. That's why Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples when you love one another, when you come together and you're united. Very important. Okay, next characteristic moving through here, individual discipleship. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. So also we need to be disciple makers. In place of devoting your powers to theorizing, Christ has given you a work to do. His commission is go throughout the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you, with reference to discipleship, discipling is coming along somebody and saying, you know what, I'm going to walk the Christian walk with you. It is praying for somebody. It's encouraging somebody. It is investing of yourself in another. That's what discipling is all about. What does an apple tree produce? It's a trick question. But you're right, it's apples. But it's more than apples. What is the purpose of an apple with reference to an apple tree? Ah, to produce other apple trees. Remember, it's the seed in the apple that's important to the tree. The apple is just to convey the seed. So apple trees must produce apple trees because if an apple tree does not produce another apple tree then eventually there won't be any more apples so as disciple makers what is it that we ought to be doing we ought to be helping and encouraging others to be disciple makers themselves right so the things that they've received from us they begin to implement and they begin to lead others to come to Jesus so as a church we should not be satisfied just because somebody is following the 28 fundamental beliefs that's not enough. We need to invest in that person until they're able to share with somebody else what they've learned. That's discipleship making. And that's a mission field that every one of us can be involved in in the local church. Find somebody in the church that's new. Start investing in them. Start sharing with them. Start encouraging them. And let's see what God will do through you as you minister to these other people. Okay. I'm going to jump forward, otherwise we're not going to have enough time. Let me jump to the next one. Inspiring Sabbath school. We need to have inspiring Sabbath school. Acts 17, 11 says, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So their Sabbath school involved studying the word. And then you have this statement, the Sabbath school is to be the is to be an important branch of missionary work, not only because it gives to young and old a knowledge of God's Word, but because it awakens in them a love for its sacred truths and a desire to study them for themselves. Above all, it teaches them to regulate their lives by its holy teaching. So Sabbath school is designed to really study the Word of God, but then look as to how we can apply those teachings in our lives. That's the key. Too often we have our Sabbath school classes together and we read a passage of Scripture and then we say, well, what do you think that means? Oh, I think it means this. And what do you think it means? Oh, I think it means that. Oh, no, 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 it means this. So we spend our time trying to explain what we think the Bible means. I think it would be more productive if we study to figure out what the Bible means and then ask the question, how do we apply this to our life? Does that make sense? Kind of have it a little more focused, so it's practical. So we want to have practical Sabbath school. We're applying biblical truth to our lives so that it can make a difference. 
That was the experience of these believers in Thessalonica in the early Christian church. Okay, in Luke chapter 24, verse 32, it's speaking of uh, Jesus meeting the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they said, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Why is it that their hearts burned within them? What was it that Jesus was opening to them from the scriptures? The prophecy concerning himself. If we want people's hearts to burn within them, show Jesus through the scriptures. Show Jesus in the prophecies. Reveal Jesus in his word. Boy, I tell you, there's nothing more inspiring and more powerful than discovering aspects of Christ and his mission through the scriptures, through the stories in the Old Testament, through the passages in the New Testament, through the parables that Jesus told. I mean, there's so much in that. Just everything in scripture is focused in one way or another on Christ. So look for Jesus in the scriptures and bring it to light. That's how people's hearts will burn within them. The Sabbath school should be one of the greatest instrumentalities and the most effectual in bringing souls to Christ. Okay, I'm going to jump to the next one. Heartfelt worship. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. What is the object of assembling together? Is it to inform God or to instruct Him by telling Him all that we know in prayer? We meet together to edify one another by mutual exchange of thoughts and feelings, thus making one another acquainted with our aspirations, our hopes, and gathering strength and light and courage from one another. By our earnest, heartfelt prayers offered up in faith, we receive refreshment and vigor from the source of our strength. So what is the purpose of church? What is the purpose of worship? It's to share one with another so that we can receive strength from God, so that we can be equipped for another week, so that we can stand firm for the truth and be faithful. Jesus said, These people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. So Jesus says worship that is not genuine, that's not heartfelt. Jesus says is in vain. It's just an empty form. Why is that? Because it can change the heart. Now here's a statement that I'm going to share with you. I'm going to go back because I don't want you to read it beforehand. This, I think, is the most powerful statement that I'm going to share with you. It's very profound, and it has to do with worship. So this is what the pen of inspiration says. This is what Ellen White has to say. This was published in Review and Herald, January 1891. Ellen White wrote this. She said, the absence of heartfelt religion, and then she explains what that is. She says it's the love that purifies the soul, places the professed followers of Christ with his enemies. So the absence of heartfelt religion, what is that? Love that purifies the soul, places the professed followers of God with his enemies. So if we come into church and we're just going through the motions, but we don't have the love of Jesus in our heart, if we don't have heartfelt worship, we might think that we're on God's side, but in reality, whose side are we on? We're on the enemy's side. Do you see that? See the significance of that? Too often we just go through the motions, just kind of do it because we know this is what we need to do but we haven't allowed Jesus to put his love in our hearts. We, we haven't humbled ourselves in his presence. 
Sometimes we think we're on God's side, but in reality we're on the side of the enemy. Genuine, heartfelt worship is what's needed in the church. Our final point, fervent prayer. Matthew 21, 13. Jesus said, It is written, My Father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Uh, we've been told prayer is the key that will unlock the treasures of heaven to you. And then Jesus said, Pray without ceasing. And our final one, unceasing prayer is the unbroken union of the soul with God so that the life from God flows into our life and from our life purity and holiness flow back to God. It is impossible for the soul to flourish while prayer is neglected. Now, why is prayer so important? Here's why. Because prayer brings us into the presence of God. And in the presence of God, there is power. In the presence of God, there is healing. In the presence of God, our lives are changed. Prayer brings us into His presence. You know, on one occasion, I had a friend of mine. He was a pastor, and he said, you know what, why don't you come with me to a conference? We went to a conference in a place called Kansas City in Missouri, and we were on our way back home. He wasn't an Adventist. I was a, actually a Sabbath-keeping church, but not an Adventist church. So we went to this conference. We were on the way home. He says, do, do you mind if we just stop for a few minutes? He said, there, there is a young man who I've been doing Bible studies with, and um, we just want to stop for a few minutes and visit with him at a restaurant on the way up. I said, sure, no problem. So we stopped, and he came in, and the young man was there. And so the pastor friend of mine was doing the uh, couple of studies on practical Christianity, the importance of Bible study, the importance of prayer, some of these things. So he was talking about it. Finally, the young man raised his hand. He said, you know what? You spoke about the importance of Bible study and prayer, but he says, you know, why, why do we need to tell God stuff that He already knows? What's the point of that? You know, God really knows what I need. God really knows what I want. Why do I have to tell Him that in prayer? What, what's the point of that? And the pastor friend of mine kind of thought about it for a minute and said, well, you know, it's important. We need, we need to express ourselves. But I didn't think He gave a good answer to the young man. But it was a good question, so I started thinking about that. Why, why do we pray? Why is prayer so important? Is it just to tell God something He knows? No. Well, on the way home in the car, I was thinking about this. In the next few days, I kept thinking about it and thinking about it and started doing some studying. And finally, it dawned on me. The purpose for prayer is not to tell God something that He already knows. The purpose of prayer is to bring us into the presence of Jesus. That's the purpose of prayer. Bring us into the presence of God. And then I changed why I pray. Now, my prayer is not simply to do something that I know I need to do. But I began to say, I'm going to pray until I enter into the presence of God. Now, sometimes uh, I could enter into the presence of God through prayer quickly. I could sense His presence and, um, you know, I, I, I prayed earnestly and fervently. Other times there were so many things clouding my mind. I was so busy with so many things. Sometimes I had to pray a little bit longer before I got connected with God. But I said, I'm going to pray until I sense God's blessing, until I'm in the presence of God. That became the gauge for prayer, not just a task that you have to do, just go through the list, you know, I've got to pray, I've got to pray. No, but pray until you receive the blessing of Jesus, till you sense His presence, until you're encouraged, until your burdens are lifted, until the peace of Jesus comes into your heart. Pray until you enter into the presence of Jesus. Then you are fulfilling the real purpose of prayer. 
It's not just a task that you have to do. It's entering into the presence of God. And that makes all the difference in prayer. Yes? I don't know. That was the first time I met him. So I didn't know how much he has studied. But, you know, that would be a point you want to make. I mean, if you know who God is and you have the privilege of entering into his presence, I mean, that changes everything. You're going to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's a humbling experience. But for us, so often we take prayer for granted and we lose focus of what the real purpose of prayer is. The purpose of prayer is to enter into God's presence. That's the power of prayer, coming into the presence of God. So that's why fervent prayer is so needed in the church. Here's our 10 points that we looked at. In order to be an effective church, to be an effective Adventist, we need to have a clear identity. We have an urgent message. That's the three angels' messages. We need to be effectively trained. We need to have soul-winning ministries, Christ-centered evangelism, meaningful relationships, individual discipleship, inspiring Sabbath school, and heartfelt worship. And finally, fervent prayer. 10 characteristics of a healthy Adventist church. Let's pray and we'll take a quick break. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you that we're able to be here. Thank you for your word and thank you for calling us to be witnesses for you. Lord, just help us to be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.